0: Welcome to Life on Pause,
1: a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer.
2: Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in and after treatment.
0: Like what you hear? Have something to add?
2: Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. Welcome to Life on Pause. Tonight's topic is Ewing sarcoma. We're joined by three young adults. As well as Dr. Joe Drabick, as we explore this particular type of cancer and how it impacts young adults. So to start off, we're going to hear from Dr. Drabick and learn a little bit more from the oncologist's perspective.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for tuning in. So, so Ewing sarcoma is not named after J.R. Ewing from Dallas. It's named after a Dr. Ewing, who's a famous pathologist who actually was one of the founders of Memorial Sloan Kettering. It was a, this is back like in the early 20th century. And, uh, he described the Ewing's tumor. And now there's actually a whole family of Ewing's tumor like things, not just Ewing's classic Ewing. There's always, there's the family of Ewing's tumors, which is some other weirdo things that we have. Like, uh, for example, small round cell tumor of the abdomen is a weird one. And then there's some other peculiar ones. And they, they typically afflict, uh, Young adults and teenagers, it's a, uh, and it typically affects the bone, although sometimes it can affect be what they call extra osseous, which means not in the bone. So they can arise in weird places. Like I had a young woman had it in her kidney, in her ureter area that was, she was fairly young, but she had had breast cancer already. So then she got this. So it was really challenging treating her. And then uh, the oldest person I've ever seen was 82, had Ewing circum of the stomach. And then I had a, a young woman who was in her thirties who developed it in her larynx. So you can get it in some peculiar places, but far away, the most common places is in uh, the bones, particularly the femur and the lower extremity, but you can get it in any bone. There's a peculiar variant that affects the chest wall, and it's called Askin's tumor, where you get a thing in your rib that's uh, associated with it. So it's basically a tumor of what they call mesenchymal cells, which give rise to a lot of things. And they have these characteristic chromosome abnormalities where two chromosomes got together that shouldn't be together. and uh, this getting together makes Abnormal uh, gene product drives the tumors to reproduce and be a problem. Typically, we'll be treated with what they call multimodality treatment. I means modalities are like surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. They're they're, they're considered the modalities. So for Ewing's, typically, will involve all the modalities or at least two of them. Chemo being a prime component. So they are chemo sensitive, and they actually to have very Huge responses, but you still have to have the, some either radiation or surgery. So if the disease is limited to like a bone, the problem is it can send off little cells right from the get go. So you can't just cut the bone out. You have to do the chemo and radiation potentially, and that or surgery in that situation. And there's you can cure about about a half of those patients who so have what they call limited stage, where it's just in one area, and you give the chemo, the local treatment, either surgery or radiation, sometimes both, and then more came out. And after that, they can have long-term survival. And I have a bunch of patients like that, that i graduated from follow-up. I had a guy, he's like 10 years out (laughs) and he came back for some other problem. They thought it was back again. So now I don't think it's that. It turned out it was just like an infection in his chest that was worrying him, but it was, had nothing to do with his cancer. So, so basically, yeah, usually if you make it like two or three years out, pretty much good, hardly ever comes back after that, but it can still do so. And unfortunately, 50% suggests that a lot of the patients will have recurrence, and then it's hard to treat the recurrences. If the patient is, has already has metastatic disease when it presents, you can still cure a small percentage, but it goes down to like about 15%. I, I've had some patients who it's already spread in multiple bones or lymph nodes, and you treat them with the same therapy, and they'll respond, and sometimes with a complete response but they have a strong propensity for recurrence, much higher than the ones that just had localized disease. There are treatments that we employ if it does come back, and uh, which includes different kind of chemo drugs and sometimes pill drugs that are not chemo, like that drug called bevacizumab, which uh, inhibits the blood vessels that feed the tumor. And there's some new drugs that they're experimenting with. They just presented some results at our big meeting, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, that was online this year. But they presented. This pill drug that's specific for the Ewing's uh, abnormality, this 1122 translocation actually targets that defect. And it looked pretty promising, at least in the early stages. So so there's a lot of research going into things and hopefully make progress, but it's still frustrating, especially when it, uh, you you go through all this treatment, which is fairly long. It takes like a year and then it comes back on you. But so it's pretty much an ordeal for these young heroes going through this. And, uh, it's amazing how strong people can be. And then hopefully at the end of it, if they're disease even in the even in the metastatic settings, sometimes they'll walk away from it, it'll be cured. And we always hope for that, obviously. And hope that it doesn't come back. But when it comes back, we deal with it the best we can. As I mentioned, research is ongoing to try and find new approaches to it. I like this one with the pill because it's specific for the defect that's associated with Ewing's sarcoma. It's a very targeted approach to the treatment of it, but it's still very early for that. Unfortunately, the Ewing's family tumors do not respond very well to immunotherapy, which everybody likes for everything else. I use it for a lot of other different cancers, but it doesn't seem to work so hot for this family of tumors, probably because it has, they have very limited other mutations, which make new proteins that can be recognized by your immune system. It just has this one anomaly that drives the growth of the, the tumor type. So that's where we're at. in the it can be challenging in patients who are particularly older kids to like teenagers and stuff handle it much better than older folks as you would anticipate. And that's a general principle that, you know, pediatric tumors that are in an adults tend to not do as well as the kid population, but we do our best. <laughs> like the 80 year old lady, <laughs> it was a tough one for her. But uh, uh,
2: none of the um, <laughs> uh, panelists on today are anywhere near 80. We can uh, do a, um, Follow uh, like episode the in like 16 in years and catch and catch what they're up to, on um, at 80. But right now, I think most of them are still in their lower 20s. Yes,
0: um, and that's typically the case. Yeah,
2: yeah. And you described kind of from the oncologist perspective what you see, what it is, what it's kind of how it's described, perhaps, in scientific literature. But I'm curious if each of the panelists would introduce yourselves and share a little bit about your story and then talk about what it's like from the the lived experience.
3: I am Kayla. Hi. I was first diagnosed at 23 years old. And then after um, getting in remission, I was in remission for nine months. It came back in the same spot. I am now six months in remission Both experiences, like both treatments were totally different. I gained a lot of weight within the first time of being sick and the radiation didn't bug me as much as I thought it would. I just got a lot of sunburn in that area and I did not know about the radiation ink that you get. So I do have new freckles on my stomach and in my back. The second go round of the chemo treatment was pretty brutal. I lost a lot of weight and my stomach. Would not stay normal whatsoever. And then an 18 hour surgery, and here I am today. Hi, I'm Rebecca.
4: I just turned 21 and I was diagnosed very early 2019. And um, I had treatment, chemotherapy for a year. I had a pretty massive surgery on my leg where the tumor was. And right now I'm almost two years in remission. So that's pretty great. The treatment was awful, definitely a lot of sickness and just a lot of unexpected things like severe fatigue, the pretty expected memory loss, stuff like that. And the surgery was pretty incredible, what my surgeon got to do.
1: Hey, I'm Colin. I am uh, now 25 years old, and I was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma when I was 15. It took us a little bit of time to figure out what exactly this pain in my rib was. Like Dr. Drabik mentioned. Ewing sarcoma can present in a lot of different places, but usually the leg is the most common. So whenever we were trying to figure out what my bone pain was, we sort of thought of other possible reasons for that first and ended up taking quite a bit of time to figure out that what I actually had was Ewing sarcoma. So that in itself was a little bit frightening because then we went on to learn some of the statistics about localized versus metastatic disease. And oh boy, we we sort of waited for One ended up being about nine months to try and figure out what this thing was. But fortunately, I did have localized disease. And even more to the variability of Ewing's, uh, I only had chemotherapy and surgery followed by chemo. I was really fortunate to not need radiation. And here I am 10 years later. uh, Treatment certainly wasn't easy by any means, but uh, I had a lot of of factors sort of go my way. Uh, And I'm really grateful to, to sort of be doing this thing 10 years out.
2: Your story echoes actually... Gabby, so she wrote some answers since she couldn't be here tonight. She was also um, 16, so close in age to you, Colin. And she was diagnosed, she was a sprinter and long distance runner for track and cross country. And then after races, she experienced like these debilitating pain in her right side, where it became like too painful to take a deep breath. But the coaches and adults in her life all talked it up to bad side stitches and um, she's just like, I, I knew it was something worse because I could feel the growth on my ribs. And eventually my mom um, was able to see the growth and we went to Hershey for a biopsy. But she was 16 and she writes, B.O.N. sarcoma is a cancer of the bone. And the tumor that caused me so much pain was quote unquote, easily removed. So after she healed from surgery, she's like, I had no more pain which was really confusing because then she was ready to go back to normal life, but she still had a lot of chemo treatments in front of her. So it was really hard for her to begin chemo because she felt like she was already healed when the tumor was removed, but then the side effects of chemo kick in and you feel awful once again. She says, I wish I would have kept a journal during my treatment both to help me get my feelings out at the time and for me to remember more clearly now, 10 years later. So actually one of her pieces of advice was, she's like, I wish that I would have done all those things people told me that I should do. That I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so 10 years later, she's looking back and saying, gosh, it actually would have been helpful to have kept a journal, to talk to people more about how she was feeling. So I'm wondering if in hearing either Gabby's Kind of writing or other panelists' stories, what it reminds you of, what resonates with you, either as another young adult or as, as the oncologist.
4: Something really interesting about her story was that you know she was an athlete, and they could never get an answer for her pain. And something was kind of similar for my story, where I had marched drums for years, and everyone was telling me, "Oh, it's inflammation. It's you know, it's not that bad. Rabbit takes Tylenol." And just like her, it, it took a bit of pushing to finally get diagnosed. So that was that was a bit difficult. And that resonated with me.
3: What resonated with me was the fact that I should have kept a journal. And now that I realize that I do tell others, like I have a TikTok and I do tell others to yeah, keep a journal or a sketchbook. That way you if you have a bad day, you can go back and reflect on what you've overcome. And so I agree with her. It's, to keep it journal.
1: Yeah, and something I think Rebecca also alluded to it, there's a little parallel with my story, a little bit different where I didn't think anything was wrong. I was an athlete as well. I was doing some weightlifting whenever I started having my pain. So I sort of thought, oh, maybe I'm just doing an exercise wrong and pulled a muscle. And it wasn't until I sort of, uh, like Gabby alluded to, had a little bit of a bump that I could actually feel uh, where my tumor was That we that we ultimately got the scans that found it i sort of wanted to wait until after my baseball season was over but my
0: mom uh, my mom wanted to get that x-ray a little more quickly yeah i think that's a common scenario is that it's frequently blown off by the adults and the patients themselves because oh you have so many other reasons for aches and pains they're much more common like you said and i've seen it time and time again is that it's frequently kind of oh blown off as like side stitch or it's a snake in your joint or something like that just from working out or running and stuff like that so it's I mean, it happens with pretty much a lot of different cancers like that. I had a guy with osteogenic sarcoma, a young guy, and they, he was blown off for a year and it was like really hurting him. No one would take him seriously. So finally he tripped and fell into like a side of a car and he broke his arm and they shouldn't have broke with that little bit of trauma that he had. And it was like, it was like eaten away by the tumor. So it was like, it's hard to know when. I think if you have any pain and it's just not getting better, you should check it out. I mean, as a general rule, but, uh, there's a lot of pushback on that. No, you're just, there's nothing wrong with you. just work, stretch it out and it'll be okay. And so I can understand the anger and stuff when that happens. Cause I was pretty angry about that guy for like a year. They're blowing him off. It was, it was so, it made it a lot worse having his broken bone in the middle of this tumor. So different kind of cancer, but the same idea. So. Yeah, I don't know what what to say about that because it's just common things are common and rare things are common. So they, used to, they say in medical school when you hear hoofbeats, hoof think of horses, not zebras, you know, but uh, sometimes it is a zebra. So you have to be cognizant of that. So, again, I think if you have any persistent pain, it just doesn't seem to be getting better and it's just getting worse. You should check it out as a common idea.
2: That's a great segue into a question actually specifically for Colin. So. One common theme in our podcast is that the young adults, they did didn't get the runaround. Either they gave themselves the runaround about it's nothing, or when they finally did see a medical provider, they got like shunted around with different services. So Colin, do you want to share your good news as far as doctoring? And then as a um, cancer survivor, what perspective do you bring to that?
1: Yeah, um, so to, to share a little bit. I'm coming back from Michigan because that's where I'll be starting my pediatric residency. A couple of weeks ago, I graduated from Penn State College of Medicine. And that was sort of a result of my cancer experience, sort of being in the position of a patient and and sort of seeing how my provider helped me, um, sort of seeing what some of the other kids went through. I decided I wanted to make that my career. And and in terms of perspective, I mean, I think it, it certainly helps that I've been through it. I don't Want to say that I know better than other people because I've had it because there are some really, really amazing doctors out there and they don't all need to have cancer to be amazing doctors. But I think what we've already started to hear is that there's some shared experiences that are pretty unique to to our patients here and to our uh, young adults that are on the podcast. Uh, And that's, that's something that can always help uh, with, with the term empathy that we like to use a lot in medicine these days, sort of being able to, to understand how someone's feeling or maybe what they're going through even if you're not actually experiencing it. So I think one thing that I'll have going forward is, is some of those shared experiences and maybe that will help strengthen my relationships with my patients. Maybe that'll help them uh, feel like I'm a resource that they can talk to about their vulnerabilities and their challenges. Because as with cancer, there will be challenges regardless of, of how well things can quote unquote go. But I think just understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing will, will help me moving forward and uh, really privileged to be in that position.
2: Yeah, and you nailed it. There will be challenges and vulnerabilities. What were the challenges or the most challenging parts for each of you? And then how did you navigate that? And be aware, I think most of you are, that we're not looking for only the the pretty, I survived and triumphed and I then raised millions of dollars stories. We're looking for what was it like on the good and the bad days?
3: I'm a mom and... I also lost my mother to um, cancer. She had multiple myeloma. So, four years later, I was diagnosed, and the first thing I thought of was my son. So, on the bad days, I was usually in treatment. I had to go in for treatment five days at a time, home for a week, and then go back for three. So, going back and forth to being a cancer patient and then going home to be a mom was really challenging because not only that, it was that he didn't really understand what was going on. And I now felt how my mother felt when she was sick and we didn't understand what was going on. So every bad day I had, I just thought of my son, regardless if he knew what was going on with me, he is what I drew my strength from.
1: Being 15 and then 16 for the majority of my treatment, the challenges that I sort of look back at now, mostly social, I had, A wonderful support system, a ton of friends and a ton of family that was there with me. But they can't exactly be in the hospital with you receiving the same therapies. You may not be able to make it to all the the social events, the different outings that you would have otherwise been able to go to. So that was that was something that was really difficult for me, especially early on. My therapy started right before the summer. So I spent a good chunk of that summer in the hospital. Wasn't able to go on any vacations or or take any really major trips or anything like that. And that was something that was a little more difficult. The therapy itself was challenging, um, as as anyone can s- suggest or uh, attest to. I'm a very structure oriented, uh, very creature of habit type person. So sort of the unpredictability of what each treatment will do to my body was difficult for me. I like to sort of have a plan. But when I wasn't sure if I'd be feeling up to go do something or or not feel very well, it made it a little frustrating to try and figure out or really to have those things to look forward to.
4: For me, the challenge was that I had just gained a ton of independence. I was 18. I was at my first semester of college. And so I was out of the house. Everything was going great. It was so much fun. And then I come back and the day that I was supposed to go back for my second semester, I got slammed with my diagnosis. And That was really difficult because all of a sudden we went from ultra independent to having virtually none within weeks because I was just so sick from the treatments. And then when I had my leg surgery, I couldn't walk for months and I had to have assistance doing so many things. And so the independence was so challenging to get through, not having it as much and wanting it. Were
2: there any unexpected challenges? Like you may have been prepared for that chemo was going to be particularly noxious, but were there things that you didn't expect to be hard that caught you unawares?
4: For my treatment, my oncologist told me that the chemo had hit my body harder than they had ever seen it hit anyone. After every treatment, my ANC was absolute zero. And three times I ended up in the hospital with sepsis and it delayed my treatment by months. So you know, not knowing when my treatment was going to end, not knowing if I was actually going to get to my next treatment on time, or if I was just going to end up in the hospital for another couple of weeks. That was the biggest challenge.
1: I think for me, one of the the bigger challenges I had was, was one of the side effects, particularly from living Kristen. Like I alluded to before, I was an athlete before and after cancer. Uh, I always like to do things, throw things. I had pretty good hand-eye coordination. And the peripheral neuropathy or sort of the nerve damage from the therapy sort of left me weaker than I had really anticipated. I had turned 16, but there were points where I couldn't really turn the car keys to start the car. I was doing homebound instruction, but I couldn't really hold the pencil very well. So I had to type a lot of things. And at that time we didn't use computers for everything in school. And with my, uh, it primarily affects the, the distal appendages. So your, your feet and your hands, uh, and then my feet. I was always a little bit of a, a clumsier athlete, but I was, I was tripping and falling up and down the stairs almost daily. Um, so that was just an adjustment and, and sort of realizing that even though with cancer, you're, you're not healthy, but I, I was weaker and, and more vulnerable than maybe I anticipated I would be.
3: I didn't know how drained I was going to be after chemotherapy. I knew I was going to be really tired and not be able to do much, but doing one of my favorite things, playing with my son. And I couldn't even do that. And he'd get frustrated with me, so I'd feel guilty. And then I'm like, okay, no, it's the chemo. It's not me. And it just, it really made me flustered because I felt like I could still be able to play with my son, right? But chemotherapy really, really sucks a lot out of you. Yeah, it does.
4: How did you guys tackle like the recovering from chemo like after your therapy? How did you move on, get healthy again, both mentally and physically, stuff like that?
1: I think for me, as I alluded to, I had some some physical challenges, and just whenever you have chemotherapy for as long as people with Ewing's do, you get deconditioned. So I went from being a pretty good athlete in pretty decent shape to not really being able to run, uh, not really being able to do the things I used to do. So I had to really commit to training my body to try to get back to some of that. My Biggest goal coming out of therapy was I wanted to get healthy enough to play football uh, a couple of months later. And that was probably a little too ambitious of a goal. But um, I spent weeks, if not months, just trying to slowly rebuild strength, rebuild coordination. And and unfortunately, some of the side effects did improve with time. Uh, I talked about the neuropathy earlier. That's significantly improved with the further I get from my therapy. Mentally, I don't know that I have the best answer for that. There's certainly some memories that it remained poignant. There's, I don't know, one of the things I like to think of is is it wasn't all bad. Um, there were a lot of people that I met during my cancer journey, and that experience had a pretty dramatic impact that I'm very grateful to have crossed paths with, and that wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have gotten cancer. Um, so I think trying to find the good in something that's inherently bad uh, was something I tried to do, especially whenever whenever things like survivor's guilt or, or worried about future scans and things like that would come up. I try to sort of think of some of the good that came out of all of it.
3: I agree with Colin. Having cancer and then surviving it does give you this a new anxiety basically with every scan and just every time you get a call from your doctor's office and email and whatnot. It's mentally I wouldn't know how to answer that question either because I do have a scan on Wednesday and I am very nervous about it. Because every day I do experience pain, I've had had three of my ribs removed, and uh, a spinal fusion, and a little bit of my right lung snipped. So I do feel out of the norm. And right now, I'm trying to get through the frustrations with that by staying active. I got a dog just so I could go outside more and get active. I'm not pushing myself, but I'm encouraging myself daily. I do have a question. Um, going through treatment. Did you guys always have somebody with you, like every appointment, every um, checkup, or was there times you were alone? And if there were times that you were alone, how was your thought
1: process? Yeah, I can start. Um, for, for all of my treatments, I was 15 and 16 for, so I if I wanted to come alone, I really really wouldn't have had the ability to drive on my own. Um, and then with, with the therapy too, uh, I was really fortunate that either my mom or dad was there for every treatment. Uh, every night I spent in the hospital, they were there with me, uh, one of them. And that was something that I came to learn that wasn't the case for every child or, or every young adult. And that's something that I was really just really appreciative of. In terms of follow-up appointments, I think there were, there were a few that I did go to on my own. I think, in a way, I was fortunate that I wasn't maybe as worried as I should have been about them. Looking back, I, I sort of had the the approach that well, if it happens, I wasn't maybe as anxious as anxious as I could have or should have been. was kind of lucky, but yeah, I was. I was very fortunate to have someone with me for for the vast majority of everything.
4: I had my mom with me, thankfully, through everything that I needed her for. But funny enough, there were times when that independence would kick in, and I was like, you know what? It's just a blood test. I'm going by myself. And there were a few times she had to kind of back me off and be like, sweetheart, you can barely walk straight. Maybe you shouldn't be driving. Just just let me take you and you can come next week. So it was a really good balance that when I could have the independence, you know, she let me take care of things by myself. But when I really needed her for treatments or hospital stays, she was right by my side and it was incredible.
2: Kayla, your question makes me wonder if you had appointments that you went to by yourself and especially aware that you may have had appointments you couldn't bring somebody with because of COVID.
3: Yes. Well, as I said before, my mother had passed and most of my, I'm from Louisiana and most of my family is back home. So my grandmother and my aunt kind of swapped shifts on being with me. And, um, a lot of times where she couldn't be there because she was up North. So, uh, there was weeks where I would be there in the hospital room all by myself. And it was, uh, very challenging, very hard, but, The nurses I had in that piece ward was amazing. And they would just come and hang out with me, watch parts of movies with me, and just try to make me feel as comfortable as I could. Now, the past, a lot of the past few uh, checkup scans I had, I've been by myself. And um, it's hard because all around me, it's quiet. But then in my head, I'm just like, Oh my goodness. I got to go get this done. I got to get this done. Now, when I'm going to hear about the results, what's my doctor going to say? And then there's always that gut rich, riching feeling that when your doctor comes in the room, she's either going to have a smile on her face or you could just, you just know when something's bad and being alone has a lot to do with your thoughts. So when you have somebody with you, they're able to calm you down or hear how you feel and to just be there.
2: I love that description because hospitals are often very quiet environments, but I think a lot of people can relate to how loud it can be inside the skull. Dr. Driebeck, um, you've been doing this for a while. What questions thoughts are pinging around in your mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen the whole commish and I've seen people go through it. It's obviously I didn't go through it. I think. The narratives I heard today kind of reinforce, you know, my kind of how I, how I view it going through this and other cancers similarly. I guess the question I have is, uh, I would think sometimes you feel angry about things like, uh, why me and why is my life being turned upside down? Like we had a college student the other day, he's like getting ready to take finals and he has now he has leukemia. It's like, what the hell? And his whole world is like, so. So we actually arranged for him that he could take his finals on his laptop from his hospital room. So he could at least get that, take that anxiety out of him because he was all ready to go. But So that always, that deer in the headlight thing, the world is upside down. Um, that first moment when you hear like, you have this cancer and you have to do this, this and this and this, and these are the odds and this is what you have to do. I can't imagine for me to. To deliver it is one thing. I try to do it as a compassionate way as possible, but it's always difficult to do from my perspective, but I can't imagine, and I'll say that to the people, I said, I can't imagine what it's like when you're in. So I just like to hear what people think about when they get the, the news that their whole world is upside down now. They have to change everything, especially like a single mom and deal with a baby, with a little, little one and all this, and then school and the, you know all the things you've had just kind of totally upended i cannot. it's probably like unbelievable stressful and like there's probably a lot of anger there i think as well as other feelings so i'd be curious to see what what people have to say about those things
4: i actually kind of have a funny story about this as as funny as it can be for the situation when i had my biopsy my mom asked my surgeon to deliver the news and so he came in he was super casual the way he did it was quite fantastic my first question was, I just looked him dead in the eye and said, so you're telling me I can't go back to school now. And it actually kind of broke the ice in the room. We all kind of started giggling despite everything. And he was like, no, you, you're you going to have to stay here for a little bit. And so that was the first thought on my mind was just like, I was having fun there. What are you talking about? And I don't think it really hit me until actually my first treatment afterwards when my hair was falling out. And that's when I really realized, you know, there was a physical sign that was like, you're going through this and you're going to go through it for a while. And I'm not sure that I was ever angry, just very confused. So that was kind of how it hit me. It was a very delayed reaction.
1: Yeah, my reaction, we talk about all the noise in our heads that happened a lot of the time. That was sort of how I tried to process uh, when I learned that I was diagnosed with Ewings. There were almost too many thoughts for me to coherently think of anything but anger was was definitely one of the emotions that was mixed in there with frustration and confusion and shock. That anger was there for, for a little while. I think once I sort of was able to grasp what a cancer diagnosis meant, was able to start therapy a little bit and then sort of see what the future might look like, the anger sort of changed into just sort of dissipated. Um, I sort of learned that Like we alluded to before, uh, not every patient is there with someone all the time. Not every child has a parent in the hospital with them all the time. And I sort of thought that, yes, this is really awful that I have to do this, but it could still be worse. There are still other people that are going through a lot more. And that sort of resonated with me throughout. So so certainly some anger and frustration at first, especially with the initial news, but it, it did dissipate and
0: it did go away.
3: I did feel some anger. But it was after the doctor who spoke to me left. I was at the hospital all day long and um, I had gallbladder issues as well. They did um, ultrasound, CT, and then an x-ray. At first they said pneumonia. Then they're like, okay, we're going to prep you to get your gallbladder taken out. And then um, a doctor comes in and takes the other doctor out of the room and it's quiet. And he just tells me, he said, it looks to be a tumor intertwined with three of your ribs. Instantly tears. I didn't even prep myself. It's just my eyes exploded. And I was very mad. And the doctor, he was even crying because he said he had, he has never had to tell someone as young as me that I'm about to have to go through something horrendous and scary. And he even asked to hug me. So that kind of dissipated the anger. Although my mind went frantic after that. But I wasn't very angry afterwards. It was more of like a fear, worry for my son also. I think actually something interesting is
4: that for you guys, you seem to have the anger in the moment or like right at the beginning. And then it kind of dissipated. Um, That kind of made me realize that for me, I wasn't angry at first, but then I became angry, not because of the diagnosis, but because I had actually had a soft tissue tumor on my leg for about 10 years that we had been watching. And we couldn't find any reason to be concerned with it. They had done MRIs and scans. And I think when it finally hit me a few months later, that it's like, I've had this tumor for so long and we haven't even worried about it for so long. And now it's something. And that fight to try to get a diagnosis and not just be told that it was inflammation, I think that's where my anger hit a few months later. So it's the exact opposite.
2: Yeah, there's lots of big emotions that go along with the, the whole, the whole deal, anger, and then fear, confusion, given that it's, it's not an easy ride. What recommendation or advice would you give to someone? Like if you were giving advice to someone that was very early in, like, what would, what do you wish you would
0: have known?
4: I think I wish I would have known that it is okay to advocate for myself or it is okay to have someone advocate for me, like my mom being there. Because even though it seems like there are so many things that you don't have a choice in right at first or through the whole thing, that there are some things you do have choices in and that you're allowed to to make those decisions for yourself with the advice of doctors, whether you go with that advice or not. But just that you're not completely out of control and you can find things to take control in and that it's totally okay to do
1: that. I guess my advice would be something that benefited me a lot was having goals and not just overall, when I get done with this, I want to do X, Y, Z, having short-term goals. Tonight, I want to be able to watch this show. At the end of this week, I think I'll be feeling well enough to go do this with my friends. Uh, Always having sort of that carrot dangling in front of you, something to look forward to, that helped me a lot. I, I sort of alluded to my, my sort of regimented schedule that I liked. I was able to sort of figure out once things got going, when I would start to feel better. Uh, and I could sort of try and make some of those goals. Uh, or even in the hospital, have daily goals. I want to have this for lunch. I want to have, do this activity. Uh, those are those just little things that help get through sort of the monotony that therapy can be.
3: My advice would be to not feel like a burden. To know that you didn't ask to get sick. You didn't ask to feel the way that the treatment makes you feel. To keep your communication lines open to your doctor, to your nurses, to friends, to your loved ones, and to yourself.
0: Thanks for listening to Life on Pause.
2: Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next next time. time.